0: It's good to have you with us. Uh, I'm Charles. Uh, I particularly want to welcome you today. It's Good Friday. Today's the day we remember, we celebrate, we rejoice in uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Uh, We're going to look at that passage in a moment. Uh, Before we do, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank and we praise you for your Son. Uh, Thank you for his birth as a man, for his perfect life, But particularly today, we thank you for his death for us. Father, his death is our only hope uh, because it is there that you made us yours and you declared us clean. Father, we pray, speak to our hearts today. Pray, encourage us, uh, bring us to repentance, give us faith and give us hope. And Father, we pray, do it by your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Well, today we are focusing on the central event of Christianity, uh, which is the death of Jesus. Uh, Now, at one level, our prayer as a church is that we would always be focused on the cross. Uh, Why? Because Jesus is the central uh, figure of the universe. uh, And the central moment of his life and ministry was his death. And so our prayer is that week by week, the cross would always be the center of everything we do. Uh, It's our heartbeat, it's the backdrop, it's the colour, it's the texture of who we are. Uh, But each year at Easter, we take the time to stop and we reflect on what actually happened. Uh, Or to put it differently, um, every week here at church, we unpack the significance and the implications of the cross. But it's at Easter that we stop and we reflect on the actual events of the cross, uh, what actually happened. Uh, But more than that, uh, the gospel accounts themselves really have as their main focus the events of and leading up to the death of Jesus. Uh, So just to take Luke as an example, which we're going to be looking at today, um, he spends a quarter of his gospel, six of 24 chapters, uh, retelling the events of really just the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Uh, There is a disproportionate focus on the death of Jesus. Uh, Some theologians have said that the Gospels are really um, stories about Jesus' death with an extended introduction. Um, But have you thought about how strange it really is to have a cross at the centre of not only the Gospels, but the entire Christian faith? Uh, Remember, the cross was Rome's most brutal instrument of torture and execution Cicero once called it a most cruel and disgusting punishment. Um, And it was used to brutalise and to terrorise people uh, in a similar way to the Nazi gas chambers. I wonder if sometimes we become a little desensitised to the cross and what it actually represents. Um, So, can you imagine for a moment a religion that had at its centre a gas chamber? I imagine most of us find that an uncomfortable thought, Um, but I wonder if that actually gives us a small taste of what it it would have been like to first hear the news of the message of the cross. Uh, That's why Paul calls it a stumbling block for Jews' foolishness to Gentiles. Uh, It's for that same reason that almost every other tradition outside the Bible tries, in a sense, to take Jesus off the cross, uh, and so for Muslims, the Quran, it says the idea of a crucified Messiah is so shameful that it must be a monstrous falsehood. Um, they can't conceive of a crucified Messiah. Or if you go back and look at some of the other later traditions that popped up around Christianity, um, like you know some of those alter- so-called alternate Gospels, none of them have at their center a crucified Jesus. Only the Bible does that. Only the Bible puts a crucified man right at the centre. Why? Why does it put the cross at the centre? Uh, that's the question I want to ask to, together today. Uh, and I want to do that by looking at Luke's account of the crucifixion. Uh, now, why Luke's gospel? Um, Well, last year we worked through chapters 4 to 6 in our series, The Preacher. Next week, we're actually going to be starting a new series in chapters 7 to 9. So look forward to that. Um, Tim is actually going to take us to Luke's account of the resurrection on Sunday. Uh, And so what I want to do today is pretty straightforward. Uh, We're going to work, uh, work through that passage. And in a sense, we are going to walk with Jesus on his journey through Jerusalem to the cross Uh, And we're going to do that under two very simple headings. What happened and what did it all mean? Uh, Heads up, we'll spend most of our time on the first. So what happened? Well, our passage, it picks the story up sometime on the Friday morning, possibly sometime around now, uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, But remember, Jesus, he had had a long night. Um, He'd been up praying in anguish to his father. He'd been betrayed by his closest friends and followers. Uh, He had been found guilty by a mock Jewish trial, and then he was dragged before the Roman governor, uh, Pontius Pilate. Um, Three times, Pontius declares that this man is innocent. He doesn't deserve to die. Uh, But the people cry out, crucify him. And so out of fear that he'd have an uprising on his hands, uh, Pilate agrees. He agrees to let a guilty man go, And to condemn Jesus in his place. And so we read verse 25. He, Pilate, released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Um, We pick the story up from there. And we're told that the soldiers led him away to be crucified. Uh, But remember... A uh, crucifixion, it wasn't simply a way to execute someone. A sword could do that. Uh, it was a way to publicly brutalise and shame someone so that all the people would know what happens to the kind of people who break the law. Uh, it was fear tactics. And so what they would do is that they would force the person being crucified to carry the crossbeam of the cross uh, on their back. Uh, that crossbeam was called the patibulum. Uh, It would have weighed somewhere between 30 to 50 kilograms. Uh, And with that on their backs, the soldiers would parade them through, uh, often taking the longest route possible. Um, This is what one ancient writer called Quintilian says. Wherever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. Now, carrying this crossbeam is made all the more difficult by the fact that uh, these prisoners would have already received a flogging uh, called a scourging. Um, It would tear the flesh on their backs. Often it would expose the bone. Um, Luke doesn't actually tell us about that flogging, but we can see the evidence of it by the fact that Jesus can't carry this crossbeam. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter. He was used to carrying timber on his shoulders. But now his back had been so badly torn and deformed by such a severe scourging that he could no longer carry this patibulum. Um, You can imagine him staggering like a wounded butterfly. Um, Perhaps he fell. Uh, And so we're told the soldiers... They grab an innocent bystander, a man called Simon uh, of Cyrene, and they make him carry the cross instead. Uh, You can see it there, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Uh, Now Cyrene, uh, it was a province of North... Can you pass my water, Peter? I'd appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, So Cyrene, it's in northern Africa. It's modern day Libya. Uh, And we're told, thank you, we're told that this man, Simon, he had been um, coming in from the country. Um, We're told that uh, in the book of Acts, there was actually a Jewish synagogue in Cyrene. And so it's most likely that this man was a Jew who had been making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Uh, And so here this man is uh, standing by the road watching this gruesome parade when all of a sudden we're told the Roman soldiers, they seize him and he is forced to carry the cross behind Jesus. Poor guy. (laughs) Talk about wrong time, wrong place. Or perhaps it might be better to say right time, right place. Here's why. This man, Simon of Cyrene, it's almost certainly the case that he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Uh, Remember, he was coming up from Africa. Um, It's likely he knew nothing at all of Jesus. But it's also almost certainly the case that this man later became a Christian. Uh, Here's why we know that. If you go to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 15, verse 21, um, Mark actually tells us about Simon and his two sons. Rufus and Alexander. Uh, Now, why would Mark tell us the names of his sons unless, of course, he'd later come to know both Simon and his sons? There was no other way he could know their names. And how could Mark have known them unless, of course, they had become Christians? Um, What's interesting is that Mark's gospel was actually written in Rome and in the letter to the Romans, Paul greets a man called Rufus. Same name as one of Simon's sons. And so we're left wondering, could this have been his son? I want to come back to Simon later. Uh, but isn't it amazing how God uses seemingly random circumstances, seemingly terrible circumstances, to save an entire family? Um, next along the way, we meet a group of women who we told were mourning. They were wailing for Jesus. Uh, it's unlikely that they knew Jesus. Um, We're actually told about the women who did know Jesus later in the passage. Uh, And so it seems likely that these women, they had come out to publicly mourn uh, for all those sentenced to crucifixion. Uh, We know from other sources that was quite a common thing. Uh, But what's interesting is that Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers to record this story about these women, uh, which is actually quite a normal thing for Luke to do. Uh, Throughout his gospel, Luke consistently lifts up the role of women Uh, in his telling of the events. Uh, If you go back to the start of chapter 8, we're actually told uh, that throughout his three or so years of ministry, it was actually a group of women who were financially supporting both Jesus and his 12 disciples, Uh, which, if you think about it, is quite a significant and generous amount of money. I don't know if you've ever wondered how Jesus and his disciples were supported, uh, but Luke is the one who tells us it was a group of women. Uh, and so here again, Luke is the one who tells us that it was a group of women who came out to weep and mourn over Jesus as he walked through Jerusalem uh, on his way to the cross. Now, uh, what Jesus says in response is actually a little bit trickier. Uh, but, so let's have a read and then we'll try and make some sense of it. Uh, from verse 28. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Uh, Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Uh, Now, first just notice that Jesus, who would have been in absolute agony... He takes the time and the energy to turn around and to speak to these women. Um, He was thinking about them. Uh, But what he gives them is a word that is both surprising and terrifying. Um, It's surprising because what Jesus does is he completely flips the situation. So here they are, weeping and mourning for him. But what he does is he flips it and he says, Don't weep for me. Uh, Weep for yourselves. Uh, See, these women, they think that they are the mourners and that Jesus is the mourned. But Jesus flips that and says, they are the mourned and he is the mourner. Uh, He is weeping for them. And he invites them, weep for yourselves. Uh, They think that he is the one in danger. But he turns around and he says, no, no, no. You're the ones in danger. Uh, And that's where we get this terrifying prophecy of judgment about calling down mountains and hills. Uh, Some people think that this was actually a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened 40 years later, AD 70. Uh, At one level, I think that's partly true. But notice that Jesus, he quotes Hosea 10.8. If you go back to that passage, um, what you'll see is that it's about more than just the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, It's about the judgment of God against sin. On the final day and here Jesus is weeping because they are in danger of that judgment Um, remember they probably know very little about Jesus but notice that he doesn't just leave them with a word of judgment he also offers them an invitation he doesn't just weep for them he invites them to weep uh, to weep for themselves which I take it is the first step Towards grace. Um, have a look at what Kent Hughes says. Thus Jesus left open the possibility that God, who was in the process of redeeming Simon's heart, could also redeem the hearts of those who were lamenting what was being done to Jesus. Uh, even on the road to the cross, Jesus is preaching the gospel and he is saving lives. And so let me ask you: have you wept for yourself? Have you wept over your life? Have you wept over your predicament? Uh, That's the first step towards grace. Uh, Maybe today's the day to to start. But it's at this point in the story that Jesus reaches his destination. We're told, verse 33, he gets to a place called the skull. Uh, It was a hill just outside Jerusalem. Uh, It was bald and round like a skull. Uh, Now, just as an aside, um, the Greek word for skull is cranium, which is where we get the word cranium. Uh, But in Latin, the word for skull is calvaria, which is where where we get the word calvary. That's where we get that. Um, Now, the other name you might have heard is Golgotha. Uh, That's actually the Aramaic word for skull. So three different languages, three different names, same place. And it's there that they crucified Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't tell us all the gory details of what's involved, uh, because at one level, that's not really the point of the story. Uh, But at the same time, his readers would have known exactly what was involved with crucifixion. Uh, Crucifixion was public. Uh, They would have seen it. The images would have been seared into their mind. Uh, And so... For us who might not be very familiar with what's actually involved, let me briefly and without too much detail um, explain what's involved. Um, There's actually an excellent article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. Uh, and the first thing that would have happened is that the soldiers would have nailed his wrists or hands to the crossbeam, uh, the one that Simon was carrying. They would have used long, thick nails. Uh, and after that they would have hoisted that crossbeam up onto a stake in the ground uh, with Jesus dangling by his hands. Um, After that, they would have nailed both of his feet to that post, likely using just a single nail. And with all of this done, Jesus wouldn't have actually been much more than eye level off the ground. And there he was left to hang would have been incredible pain. All the severed nerves. um, Having to push himself up off the nail in his feet to breathe. Uh, His flayed back. Um, The word excruciating literally means of the cross. And yet Jesus is completely silent, except for one word during this whole process. Verse 34. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Once again, Jesus thinks only of others. He recognizes that these soldiers, they have no idea that they're nailing the author of life to a cross. Uh, They're just doing their job. And so he prays, Father, forgive them for this sin. Uh, They don't know what they're doing. Now, while Jesus is hanging there on that cross, four things happen. Uh, First... Uh, Three groups of people come, they ridicule him, they taunt him. They all say the same thing, save yourself. Uh, I want to come back to that later. Uh, Second, Jesus has a conversation with one of those criminals hanging next to him. Uh, Luke is actually the only one to record this conversation. Uh, Once again, I want to come back to that later. Um, Third, we're told in verse 44 that from midday until 3pm, darkness came over the land. Uh, The reason we're told, verse 45, is the sun had stopped shining. Uh, Now, we know with some certainty that there weren't any solar eclipses uh, around that time. And so what's happening is that this is a supernatural darkening. Um, It's as if all nature were bending in horror and sympathy at the death of its maker. But more than that, this supernatural darkening actually comes as the fulfillment of something that was written hundreds of years earlier back in Amos chapter 8. So come back with me for a moment to Amos, uh, because I think if we read on, we actually get a beautiful yet terrible insight into what's happening on the cross. Uh, Let me read from Amos 8.9. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the death of it like a bitter day. The darkness wasn't just nature mourning for the death of its maker. Uh, It was the father himself mourning for the death of his only son. Uh, And the end of it was bitterness. The fourth thing that happened when Jesus was on the cross is that the curtain, the temple curtain, was torn in two. Uh, Verse 45, uh, the purpose of that curtain was to forbid access to the Holy of Holies, except for once a year the high priest could go in on the Day of Atonement and offer blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so when this temple curtain was torn in two, it meant two things. Uh, First, it meant that the temple in Jerusalem was no longer the place where atonement could be made. There was now another place. Uh, Second, it meant that access to God was no longer forbidden. Um, Anyone could enter the Holy of Holies. The curtain was torn. And it's here we come to the final moment of Jesus' life, Uh, Read with me from verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. See him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing. Dust that formed the watching crowds, Takes the blood of Jesus. But before he breathes his last, um, Jesus offers one final prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In his final moment, Jesus entrusts himself into his Father's hands. I want to spend a moment here. I want to dwell on this because I think there's a number of fruitful things for us here. Um, the first thing to notice is that this prayer is actually a quote from Psalm 31.5. That was a psalm of David. Uh, it expressed deep trust and dependence upon God. Uh, but this prayer was also significant for another reason. Um, this was actually the traditional prayer that faithful Jews would pray before going to bed at night. Uh, it was what we might call their good night prayer. And so here, after three hours in the darkness, Jesus prays his goodnight prayer. And he breathes his last. Uh, but Jesus makes one small alteration to that traditional prayer. He added one word to the beginning. Father. Can you see at every moment, Jesus is entrusting himself into his father's hands. Um, I think this prayer also helps us answer a few curly questions uh, when it comes to the death of Jesus. So I want us to think hard for a moment. Uh, I think this is a very helpful passage, so stick with me. Uh, The first question is, what actually happened uh, at the death of Jesus? Like, where did he go? What happened to him? Uh, Did he go to hell for three days? Was his human nature separated from his divine nature? Did his divine nature die with the human? Uh, What actually happened to him? I think it's actually very simple, uh, and I think this verse gives us the key. Uh, I think the same thing that happens to us happened to Jesus. Uh, See, when you or I die, our soul, our spirit is torn from our body. That's the trauma of death. Uh, It's the fragmentation of the person. Uh, And so our soul, our spirit, it goes to be with the Father if our trust is in Jesus And our body is dead in the ground. Uh, It's that way until our bodies are raised and reunited with our spirit. Uh, Paul teaches that pretty clearly over 2 Corinthians 5. You can look at it later. I think the same thing happened to Jesus. His soul, his spirit was torn from his body, which went to be with the Father, and his body was dead in the ground. I think that's exactly what he's saying when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, and his spirit was with the Father for three days. His body was in a tomb until his body was raised. But you have to come back on Sunday to hear about that. <laughs> uh, I think that leads on to another curly question, um, which is whether Jesus was actually separated or cut off from the Father. Um, I reckon most of us are probably pretty comfortable with the idea that Jesus was separated from the Father. Uh, Maybe for some of us, we've got a certain song going through our heads about the Father turning his face away. Um, Now, at one level, I think that comes down to what exactly we mean when we say that Jesus was separated from the Father or that the Father turned his face away. Uh, But let me make a couple of observations. Um, The first is that there aren't any... Clear verses in the Bible that say Jesus was separated from the Father. It's not really the language of the Bible. Uh, the only verse that I think probably comes to mind is what Jesus prays in Matthew and Mark's gospel when he prays, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, first thing to understand about that prayer is that that's also a quote, it's also a psalm, it's Psalm 22. Uh, And in that psalm, David isn't so much saying, God, you have cut me off from your presence, I've been cut off from your people, so much as he's asking why he, as the righteous one, is suffering so much and why God doesn't seem to be delivering him, uh, which is a slightly different thing to being cut off from God, uh, to be separated from him. Uh, The other thing to understand is that Jesus actually prayed three things on the cross in his final moments. Um, If you put all four Gospels together, um, this is what you'll see. First, Jesus prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Matthew and Mark. Second, he prays, it is finished. It's John's Gospel. But third and finally, he prays, father into your hands, I commit my spirit, which is here in Luke. Uh, The very last thing he does is actually express his deep intimacy and union with the Father into your hands. Now, absolutely, Jesus suffered and bore the wrath of God. He took the penalty for sin, which was death. Um, But I wonder if saying that he was separated from the Father is perhaps the best way of expressing that. But with that said... That really brings us to the end of what happened when Jesus was crucified. Um, If you were there, that's what you would have seen. Uh, If you filmed it on camera, that's what it would look like. Um, But I said at the start I wanted to do two things. Um, Not just what happened, but what does it all mean? Here's why. There are two ways to watch the crucifixion. The first way is to watch it simply as if the events were happening on a movie. The second way understands not only the events, but what it all meant. What was really going on. Um, And we actually see these two ways of watching the crucifixion in the verses that follow. Um, The first one is actually uh, uh, where a man understands not only the events, but also what they mean. Uh, It's verse 47. It's the centurion. The centurion, uh, seeing what had happened praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. He understands. He praised God. Um, The second response is one where we simply watch the events as if it were happening on a movie. Uh, This is the response of the crowds. Uh, Verse 48. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Uh, The centurion, he understands what's happening. He praises God. But the crowds, they simply beat their breasts and go away, as if to say, wow, that was brutal. Beat the chest, walk away. No change, no perception. Um, Luke actually uses slightly different expressions in the Greek to explain what they saw. Um, It's more subtle in English than in Greek. You know, if I'm preaching, we're going to get some nerdy (laughs) Greek. (laughs) Um, Notice it's different in the translation. Um, the centurion Luke tells us he saw what had happened but the crowds Luke tells us they only saw what took place um, there is a difference there it is intentional and so let me ask you Grace City do you understand what it all meant or have you simply witnessed the sight uh, so with the uh, last couple of moments together uh, let me explain what it all meant so that, God willing, we might leave walking away praising God uh, rather than simply beating our breasts and saying, wow, that was brutal. Uh, The first step to unlocking the meaning is to realize that Jesus shouldn't have been on that cross. Um, He's innocent. He's righteous. Uh, That's emphasized a few different ways. Remember Pilate? Three times he says, this man is innocent, doesn't deserve to die. Um, You see, at the centurion, he says, this man was righteous. Righteous. Uh, You also see it with one of the criminals next to Jesus. Uh, This is what he says, uh, 41. He says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. Um, The Greek word for wrong there is actually unusual. It's a geographical term, uh, and it means out of place. Um, He literally says, this man has done nothing out of place. Uh, But I think this word is actually meant to, Uh, to help us realize that this man, Jesus, is out of place. He doesn't belong here. This is not his cross. So why is he there? Well, the second piece to unlocking it all is to realize that Jesus is there because he has chosen to be. Uh, He has gone there willingly and intentionally. I think we get a few small hints of that in our passage. He tells the women, don't weep for me. Uh, he doesn't protest to anything, despite his innocence. But more than that, Jesus has actually intentionally pursued the cross. If you go back all the way to chapter 9, verse 51, we see that Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. That's the big turning point of the book. He pursues the cross. Uh, but more than that, he tells his disciples, I'm going to die. And if you go back uh, Luke 9, 22, he says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, and he must be killed. So why does Jesus willingly choose the cross? Why does he pursue it? Uh, Well, here's where I want to come back to some of those conversations that happened while Jesus was on the cross. Um, There are four kinds of people that talk to Jesus while he's on the cross. Um, Three don't understand why he's there. One does. Three don't understand. One does. Uh, The first group are the Jewish rulers. They don't understand why he's there. he's really there. Uh, We read, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. See, the rulers, they believed that if Jesus was who he said he was, then he would save himself and get down off the cross. Uh, The next group are the soldiers. The soldiers also came up and mocked him they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Just like the rulers, they believed that if Jesus really was the king, he'd get down off the cross and save himself. Now, the next person to speak is actually one of the criminals next to Jesus. He doesn't understand either. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. are you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And so just like the rulers and soldiers before him, this man believes too that if Jesus really was the Messiah, he would save himself and the others hanging there with him. Uh, Only one man understands why Jesus is there. It was the other criminal hanging on the other side. This is what he says. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man understands four things. First, he understands who he is. He recognizes his own guilt. He says, we are getting what we deserve. Second, he understands who Jesus is. This man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Third, he understands where Jesus is going. He knows he is the king and that he is coming into his kingdom. But fourth, he understands that the only way for him to go there too is if Jesus stays on the cross. See, the first criminal He thought that Jesus needed to get down off the cross if he was going to save him. The second knows that the only way he can be saved is if Jesus stays. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was dying for him. The innocent was getting what he deserved. He knows there's nothing he can do to earn a place. I mean, he's hanging on a cross. He's got hours to live. And so he simply says, remember me. Uh, In response, Jesus says the only thing on the cross which wasn't a prayer, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thing that makes it paradise is because he will be with Jesus. Um, If you haven't yet become a Christian, I want to encourage you, I want to urge you, uh, do those same four things as the criminal. Acknowledge who you are, recognize who Jesus is, recognize where he's going, his kingdom, and trust that the only way you can go there too is because Jesus stayed on the cross. Uh, that's how you become a Christian. How do you live as one? Uh, just as I close, uh, let me take you back to Simon of Cyrene. He carried the cross for Jesus. Uh, and I think that we actually find in Simon, these a wonderful picture of the Christian life. Um, Jesus says, Luke nine twenty-three: Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. And follow me. Uh, What does that mean? Well, let me finish with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, He said this As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die. Because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. Why would anyone die to themselves and their own will? Because as Paul says in Romans, if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, with the centurion, we praise you. With the criminal, we pray, remember us. With Simon, we take